So we are in First Peter, excuse me, First Timothy, as we study this uh, passage, this book of Paul written to his younger son of the faith, Timothy, who's he says, I, I want you to stay in Ephesus and to straighten out what is disordered, to teach men or to command men, to charge men, not to teach anything contrary in the apostolic doctrine. In fact, he uses that that key word charge in verse 3 and verse 18 of chapter 1. He says, I stay in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons. That's a, a solemn obligation, solemn pronouncement. Charge them not to teach contrary than the apostolic doctrine. And then in verse 18, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And he also uses another word that's filled with pathos and heart and passion, the word urge. Verse 3 of chapter 1, again, as I urged you, I pled with you, I beseeched you. And then chapter 2, verse 1, says, first of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, now why this startling, passionate appeal? Well, number one, they're surrounded by false teachers, all types of false teaching. Number two, there, there were certain Christian, professing Christians who had rejected faith and a good conscience, and they had made shipwreck their faith. Verse 19, he says that there are too many mentions who have rejected faith and a clear conscience, and therefore they've made shipwreck their faith. They, they've walked away. They're, they're shipwrecked. They're, they're floundering. They're rejecting. And thirdly, because eternity is at stake. There's an eternity at stake when you share the gospel, when you hold up the name of Christ. He says in chapter 4 and verse 16, he says, Keep a close watch on yourself, Timothy, and on your teaching. Continue or persist in this, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Eternity is at stake. Chapter 4, verse 8, eternity is at stake. He says that bodily training is of some value, but godliness holds value for the present life and also for the life to come. Eternity is at stake. Chapter 6, verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, there, I charge them, there's that word again, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The eternity is at stake. And he's speaking to a culture that believed they were looking into the void of nothingness. Pascal. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician philosopher, died at age 39. He was, a, he was a Christian. He was part of a group called the Jansenist that was a recovery of the gospel within the Catholic Church of France in the 17th century. Anyway, this is what he says about the people around him echoing their thoughts. He says, I see those frightful spaces of the universe which surround me. This is 1650. And I find myself tied to just one corner of this vast expanse without knowing why I am put in this place. 
rather than in another, nor why the short time which is given to me to live is assigned to me at this point in time rather than another. I see nothing but infinities on all sides which surround me as an atom and as a shadow which endures only for an instant and they return no more. All I know is that I must soon die and what I know least is this very death which I cannot escape. The void. Nothingness. And so there's, there's a passion here. I, I've enjoyed watching a TV show that's been on for a few years. I'm watching on Netflix called Parenthood. If you've ever seen it, it's about a, a family in Berkeley, California. And it's very well done, I think. And uh, there are four children, adult children, grandchildren, mom and a dad, Camille. And the dad, Zeke, is a lovable curmudgeon. Uh, but I think it very, deals very honestly with family issues. But there's a void of anything spiritual. Very interesting. Until the youngest son, who is a free-wheeling musician that doesn't know where he's going to be tomorrow, gets married. And he marries a woman who comes from a Christian heritage, even though his wife is not. And, and his, but his mother-in-law is. And she's on him. You know, she's on him. She says, how are you going to train your son? And he replies, I have no idea. She says, I'm talking about spiritually. She says, I have no idea. I said, did your family ever go to church? He says, no. On Sunday during baseball season, though, we went to baseball games as a family. She said, so baseball was your church? And she, he said, I guess. And she went, oh, my soul. So two episodes later, he's sitting at the table with his mom and dad. They have great conversation. It's a great family, really, as far as communication. And he says to them, he says, mom, dad, why, why did you never talk to me about anything spiritual? We never talked about our purpose in living, where we're going to go when we die. We've never talked about that and his mom says well I just wanted you to find that on your own and he said really he says yeah she, she said well did you have anything spiritual mom and dad I said yeah we went through a spiritual phase we tried a little bit of this and a little bit of that we were in a Buddhist ashram for a while he says you were Buddhist and they said yeah it didn't work so we left and then he said and we decided to make the family the center of our existence not any type of religion and he says really he said yeah and then his dad finally blurted out but we gave you baseball. And the son says, thanks, Dad. And it pans out. I think that's the way a lot of people live. You substitute. There's a void, though, in your heart that can only be filled by the reality of Christ. And so Paul is passionate because there's heresy. He's passionate because eternity is at stake. And he's passionate because he wants the church to go forward. And, and, and so, really, we, we come to this place in the our study of 1 Timothy chapter 1 or chapter 2 verse 1 and, and where Paul starts talking about how to invigorate, energize the church to go forward. He, he's laid the foundation and now he's talking about the next few chapters, how to energize, organize, and, and revitalize the church to go forward in faith. And so he says, chapter 2 verse 1, first of all, right out of the gate, first of all, uh, I say to you to be people of prayer to have, I urge supplications and prayer intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires for all people to be saved 
and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. So I think very quickly this passage talks about three ways to invigorate the church. Number one, be people of prayer. First of all, he says, I urge, and then he gives several words for prayers, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving, be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead, lead peaceful and quiet lives full of dignity. And, and so if, if you study this passage and read commentaries and hear people discuss this passage, they'll say, well, a, a chief application statement here would be to pray for leaders, pray for those in authority. And that's a correct deductive statement from this passage. I was at a retreat several years ago leading it for some college students, bright college students, another state. At supper, we're talking about government, but seven offices in it supper table, the government, looking at Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 and the role of government. And I said, well, just let me ask you this. And you're, they're from different states. Said, Who are your U.S. senators? I said, I'll give you a hint. There are two from your state. Okay, that's the hint. And they sat there, and out of seven, three could name their senators. The rest got one. I said, well, now that we're on a roll, Who's the vice president of the United States? Out of seven, three or four knew. I thought, guys, this is bad. You're college students. You, you should know these things. So pray for those in authority. Let me say this. Paul writes, pray for those in authority, including kings. At the time of this writing, the time of this letter, the man who was the head of the Roman Empire was a man named Nero. He was a bad dude, a real bad dude. In fact, he wouldn't have a vast building project in Rome. He was landlocked. And so we believe that Nero and some of his henchmen set fire to a part of Rome that he wanted to reclaim, burned it out, and then he built his palatial dwellings. And of course, the, the, the rumor is, the apocryphal story maybe, is that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. That may be true, maybe not. Independent historians say, though, that afterwards he had to find a scapegoat to put this on. And so he said this new group called Christians burned Rome to the ground. And as a result of that, we had the, really the first major persecution of Christians, and we're told historically that Nero would soak animal skins in oil, wrap them in Christians, and set them on fire. He was a bad guy. So, so when, when Paul says pray for, for kings, he's talking about Nero. So I mean, some people sometimes they say, well, you know, I'd, I don't really like the president or my congressman or my senator or my governor or whatever you, and I said, well, you know, really, his name isn't Nero. And the Bible says pray for Nero. So as I look at this, and that's a, we should pray for those in authority, that we, should, we can live peaceful and quiet lives. But let me share something. When it comes to being reinvigorated, this is what hit me as I've been studying this passage. And I, it, it, it may be totally off, off base, but this is what hits me. Paul is saying to the church, pray big. 
You get it? Pray big. Now, James 5 says we should pray for those who are sick. We should pray for family. But a lot of times when I'm praying myself, once I pray for the sick and the family, those who are hurting, I kind of, but, but, but I should be praying big. I should be praying for leaders. I should be praying for nations. And as I, as I studied this, I, I was, I've been compelled to really pray for the new president of Afghanistan, President Ahmadzi. President Ahmadzi taught at Johns Hopkins for 10 years. He is a super Mensa Society member. Very, very, very bright. President Ahmadzi is married to a woman with a Christian background. That blows my mind. And to my knowledge, she hasn't renounced her faith. President Ahmadzi, in his inaugural address, publicly thanked and recognized his wife, which is unheard of in, in Afghanistan. Thus, in my mind, saying that women's rights, which are so desperately needed in the Middle East, may come to a point of recognition in Afghanistan. It's amazing. So I, I thought, oh God, what if you captured his heart with the gospel? No. So I'm praying for President Ahmadzi or, or Prime Minister Modi, the new Prime Minister of India, a country of 1.2 billion people. He comes from the BJP, the Radical Hindu Party former leader of Gujarat province, so forth. I'm just praying, God, open his eyes to the beauty of Christ and, and let these men rule in such a way that we can live peaceful and quiet lives in all dignity. Pray big, church. If we're going to be invigorated, pray big. Pray outside of yourself. Pray for revival. Pray that God would pour his spirit upon the church and upon our nation. Pray for our campuses that a great tidal wave of godly young men and women would, would come forth. Pray for our country. I'm going to give you this just time after time because it is a train wreck. This statistic is a train wreck. It's a train wreck. 40% of all children are born in single-parent families in America today. 40%. That's a train wreck. We need Christ. We we. We need revival. So, so number one is pray big. Number two in this passage is know and glory in the gospel. Verse four says this. God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. Paul says this came at just the proper time. In God's perfect plan that was created before the foundation of the earth, in the fullness of time, the eternal God became a man and died on the cross for our sins. Galatians chapter 4, in the fullness of time, God became a man, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. In, in, in the fullness of time. And, and you say, well, what, what does this mean? He desires all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. It's what it says. God, if you're in the hearing of the gospel today, God is working in your life. One way to understand this is, is that Paul is saying all types of men and women, the, the, the heresies that they were fighting involved several things. I call them legalistic legalistic and or elitist teaching. There was legalistic teaching that he combated. We know that from chapter 4, very quickly. Verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says, In the latter times some will depart from the faith. Latter times is after the days of Jesus. 
They'll depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. So, so he says one thing about these people is that they're, they're legalists. A legalist is somebody who takes, says, well, your standards are fine. For Christians, the standards of the Bible are fine. But I've got to add these standards to really make you spiritual. And that is just wrong. Everything we need is right here. So, so the legalist came along and said, it's fine to believe what you believe, but you can't marry. You can't have sex. Which is a, which is a real quick way to kill a movement, by the way, you know? If you tell the group you can't marry, you know, you die in a generation. So, so they, 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 they say you can't, you can't get married and you've got to eat only certain foods. Dietary laws, a pox on that house. Legalism. But another aspect is, is an elitism that flowed from Gnosticism, which said that the world was created by a, a putrid angel and only those who have Secret wisdom and knowledge can know the full counsel of God. In other words, and usually those were very wealthy, very educated people, not the masses. So, so they said only those educated elite can know the knowledge of God. And what Paul is saying here is no, all types of men, all types of women from every social strata are going to come to Jesus. It's interesting. I was reading this book again. It's called The Confessions of Augustine. Augustine died in uh, 434. Um, his birthday was last Thursday, okay, Augustine. So Augustine writes this about his conversion, and as a young Ph.D. student, or Ph.D. professor of rhetoric, he got involved with a group of people called the Manichees, and they died out pretty quickly, but the Manichees were esoteric, secret knowledge people. And this is what Augustine said. It's very interesting. He said, he said during this time, I fell in with this group, and we believed that by providing food, listen, by providing food for our so-called saints or our teachers, we provided food in hope that they would turn the food into angels and gods for us in the workshops of their bellies to be the agents of our liberation. That's what he believed. He believed that if you fed teachers, fed them well, that somehow as their food was digested, it would turn out to be some type of angelic message that would lead to your liberation. You said, are you kidding me? You really believe, he really believed that? Let me tell you something. There's a guy named, named G.K. Chesterton who said that when you quit believing in the God who's been revealed in the Scripture, some people just quit believing, but many people start believing anything. It's true. You just believe anything. I, I mean, you say, well... Have you ever, have you just, just Google Scientology today and, and, and read what they believe? It is absolutely bizarre. And there's some very bright people who believe that. Remember years ago, the UF cult in California? Many, many educated, very educated people bought into that thing, and there was mass suicide. You see, it's, it's not that you, when you quit believing the truth or don't believe the truth, it's not that you don't believe necessarily, it's that you just believe anything. And so what I'm saying is, He's, he's fighting this type of thinking, and he thunders out. He says, church, hear this. There is one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for our sins. 
a mediator. Over here is sinful God. Over here is man made in the image of God. But there is a chasm here that can never be crossed except by the work of Christ. Christ is our mediator. He's made a way for us to come into the presence of the triune God by his death upon the cross. I'll show you this. A survey recently was done by Lifeway Publishers out of the Southern Baptist Convention and R.C. Sproul's Ligonier Ministry. And they asked various questions. I'm just going to give you two of them today. One question or statement was this, yes or no. People must contribute their own effort for personal salvation. This was, this was a survey done among thousands of evangelicals. Now, when we say evangelical, we mean people who go to churches where the Bible is taught. They believe the gospel. The that's what evangelical means, believes the gospel. So these are people that go to churches where the Bible is taught. This isn't your person walking down the sidewalk. This is done in churches. So the question, people must contribute their own effort for their salvation. The answer is 56%. Now that's heresy. It's only the work of Christ. You bring nothing. You bring nothing. This is, these are church-going people. I want you to know the gospel. The next question was this. True or false? God loves me because of the good I do or the good I have done. That's just rank here. I mean, that's just like, yeah, no, no, no way. Answer? 18% said yes. That's 18. That's 20, that's, that's, if you're not very good in math, that's, that's about one out of five. In churches... You bring nothing to the table. There's one mediator between God and man. His name is Jesus. There's nothing you bring to the table. It's by faith alone as God works in your heart, you cast yourself upon Jesus. Nothing. I mean, these guys, these guys, right there, would, would have a greater chance to win the Super Bowl against these guys or these guys or these guys, then you would ever have a chance to do anything for your salvation. And it, I don't think those guys are going to win the Super Bowl, by the way, that peewee team. This guy, wearing beautiful swim gear, this guy is more likely to swim around the world nonstop than you can do anything to affect your salvation. Nothing. And so if the church is going to be invigorated, church, we've got to know the glory of our salvation in Jesus alone. And, and I, I say to you this morning, if, if you're here and you think that you can do anything to add to your salvation, if you, that you can impact your salvation by, by, by what you do, by going to church or by confessing your sin or by doing some works of, 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 of kindness to our community, and that's going to add to your salvation, you, you don't know the gospel. It's Christ, there's one mediator. His name is Jesus. And if the church is going to be invigorated, number three, very quickly, verse seven, for, for this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Uh, to, to me, a teacher of the Gentiles, it means nations. If I'm going to be invigorated, then I've got a heart to take it, the gospel to the nations. And as I, I reflect on this passage and I said, you know, what, is my heart broken? For people here and around the world who do not know Christ.
And the answer is no so often. No, it's not. And that's wrong. That's sin. And I, I say, you know, why? And I think, church, one reason is there's a great quote, and I don't have time to read it, by a guy named D.A. Carson in the bulletin. Read it. Please read it. And what he says is this. He says that, he says, unless the gospel is continuously held as central and as the defining point of who we are as Christians, then single issues can take over this, the central place. And he, for example, I am vehemently pro-life. I believe gift, life is a gift from God. It's easy to allow the pro-life movement to become central instead of my commitment to being pro-life to be an outworking of the glory of the creator God whose name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe strongly in, in having a Christian world and life view and being trained in that way in Christian education. And it's easy for that to become central instead of it being an outworking of the gospel. I, I believe that gender issues and the gift of maleness and femaleness should be defined as the Bible defines it, and we should be glad in that and rejoice in that. But that can become so central or even running a church, for heaven's sake. And I, 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 just, I just plead with you that when we pray and when we think, we've got to be people who pray for our neighborhoods, our nations, and the next generation. And if I'm not doing that, I'm missing out on God's desire. The neighborhoods, the nations, and the next generation. So if, if I'm being vigorous, I've got to take it to the nations. For example, you're going to be hearing about this in the weeks to come. At Christmas, we have the world offering for world missions. It's called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering among Southern Baptists. Lottie Moon was a wonderful missionary lady from Virginia who went to China and lived her whole life, adult life, taking the gospel to the Chinese. And so every Christmas we take up the Lottie Moon Offering. Southern Baptist missionaries, all 5,300 of them, 60% of their operating budget to 65 comes from this offering. And so we as a church say, let's give big. This year, we're, our goal is $500,000. And, and quite honestly, you, you can look in the bulletin and say, well, we're, we're, we're $60,000 behind budget giving right now, and we're getting ready to go into a building campaign, we hope, and shouldn't we, shouldn't we maybe pull back? No, no. We should not. We should challenge ourselves to pray for the neighborhoods, the nations, and the next generation and live that way. Live that way. If, if I'm going to be invigorated, I've got to pray, I've got to know the gospel, and I've got to believe that the gospel must go to the nations, to the neighborhoods, to the next generation. This is, this is vitally important. So, be invigorated.